0: In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here, and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news...
3: Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast for March 2011. My name's Dave Musgrove and I'm the editor of the magazine.
0: And I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the section editor.
4: So, coming up this month, we have... Convoy is the ocean-going equivalent of formation flying with the Red Arrows. That was Harry
3: Bennett on the Battle
4: of the Atlantic.
5: The civilization that was going to achieve almost total dominance over the rest within the space of a few hundred years, in 1411, was nowhere.
3: That was Neil Ferguson on the rise of the West. It was so mind-numbingly
6: boring that, that people in the, census or in, in the General Register office would know to go mad.
3: And that was Edward Higgs on the Victorian census.
0: This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. Now, before we get on to the interviews, I just want to mention something else that we've been working on this month, our very first vodcast. In the light of the new film Ironclad, which is based on the story of the 1215 siege of Rochester, we've been over at Rochester Castle in Kent, recording a short film about the history of that siege, when rebels inside the castle held out against the forces of King John. You can watch the film at iTunes, YouTube and on our site, historyextra.com forward slash Rochester. If you like what you see, we'll try and make podcasts like this a more regular feature. So do contact us by email, historymagazine at historyextra.com, Twitter, twitter twitter.com forward slash BBC History Mag or Facebook, facebook facebook.com forward slash BBC History Magazine if you have any thoughts on this.
3: Okay, our first interview this month is with Dr Harry Bennett from Plymouth University. He has written the lead feature in the March issue, tracing the story of the Battle of the Atlantic, a term that Churchill coined 70 years ago this month in March 1941. So, you've, you've written a piece for us in the, in the March issue of the magazine about the Battle of the Atlantic, and we've sort of we've, uh, we, we've hung it on the fact that, that Churchill coined the phrase the Battle of the Atlantic 70 years ago in March forty one, um, But that doesn't tell the whole story, does it? The, the, the Battle of the Atlantic is, it covers a lot of time and space, so I wonder if you could summarise what, what's going on, just try and give us a sense of, of what the Battle of the Atlantic is all about.
4: Well, I think what you've got to remember is that the Battle of the Atlantic, even though Churchill coins that phrase in March 1941, is something that actually starts on the first day of the war, the 3rd of September 1939, when the uh, liner Athenia is uh, torpedoed off the coast of... uh, to the the west of Ireland. Mm. And that battle actually lasts right until the last day of the war. So, in other words, this is a battle more like a campaign in that it literally lasts the entire duration of the second world war and it is an absolutely pivotal battle This is a battle which will determine whether or not the British can actually feed themselves, whether or not the British can actually stay in the war. And those are kind of imperative things in 1940-1941. And then, of course, it's absolutely pivotal in terms of whether or not the Allies can build up enough military capability in the Mediterranean and in Britain to begin to launch a second front for the liberation of Europe. So an awful lot depends on the kind of convoys and merchant ships which are coming across the Atlantic. From North America, with the Germans trying to stop them in between times, so it's an absolutely pivotal battle.
3: And where, where is the theatre of operation of this battle? Then is it the entire Atlantic, or are there specific places where it's where it's really focused on?
4: Well, of course, the real problem is that the Battle of the Atlantic itself is a problematic term because a merchant ship can be in the Indian Ocean one week and it can be in the Atlantic next. We're actually dealing with a global war on shipping, but it tends to focus, the key battleground tends to be the North Atlantic because it's the North Atlantic which contains the shipping route between key British ports like Liverpool, like Bristol and north america. So most of the action is taking place there. But it is a but it is a campaign, it is a battle which spills over into the south atlantic, it spills over into the indian ocean and indeed in the pacific. So the battle of the atlantic is a slightly problematic term. It is a global war on shipping, but it has a particular focus on the atlantic. That's where most of the sort of killing ground is really located. And what what are the
3: forces involved? What 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 fleets and what navies are involved in this?
4: Well, essentially, you've got a process by which the war expands massively in terms of those fleets, in terms of those forces. Initially, in 1939, you're dealing with um, a battle which is largely being fought by, between the German navy and the British and French navies. Later on, the French navy obviously drops out of the equation following the fall of France, And then we have a battle which is being fought by the Royal Navy against the forces of the Germans and also the Italians. That by December 1941 becomes a battle which is being fought between the Americans, the British, the Germans, the Italians, but then also the Japanese are beginning to get into the equation as well. So it's a kind of campaign, it's a battle in which the kind of fleets are changing quite constantly. Um, so it's a very, very mixed mixed battle that is actually taking place out there in the Atlantic and indeed beyond.
3: So we've got the, the various military naval forces involved, but underlying that is, is the reason why the battle's going on, the Merchant Navy, the ships that are actually carrying the stuff that Britain needs. Um, and that's the focus of your, the feature that you've written for the magazine, is what the, what the Merchant Navy did uh, and how it was involved. And you, you're sort of saying that they're, they're the unsung heroes of, of, of the war. Why do you say that? What what, what, what were the Merchant Navy doing that we don't know about very much?
4: Well, essentially, for the first thing, you've got to imagine those individuals are civilians. Those people are having to carry out their trade, their peacetime trade, only this time in the circumstances of wartime. The dangers to them have increased massively the rewards to them necessarily haven't increased. Recognition of what they go through doesn't massively increase during the course of the war. There is actually a kind of problem, potentially, in terms of the kind of public perception of the Merchant Navy, which is certainly there, I think, in 1940, 1941. By 1942, the attention of the authorities is beginning to turn to the thought of, well, how do we begin to recognise that particular service. So we begin to see um, programmes put out by the BBC, which is sort of beginning to sort of laud the efforts of the Merchant Navy. We see increased press sort of reflecting on the heroism of the Merchant Navy. We see poster campaigns to encourage people to join the Merchant Navy. Because, of course, one of the big problems that the Merchant Navy face as civilians is that many of them, when they're in port, because they're not wearing military uniform, some people are sort of seeing them on the street and wondering, you know, are, are those shirkers from the battlefield? Are these SPIVs? Are these people in, you know, sort of reserved occupations? Look at them and there are remarks made, comments are made. Why aren't you in uniform? Oi, join the army. Oi, join the navy. Well, the hazards that those individuals are facing are just as great, if not greater, than their compatriots in the Royal Navy, their compatriots uh, in the Royal Air Force and their compatriots in the army. So, as it were, they don't necessarily get the kind of due recognition that perhaps is due to an absolutely critical service. Because what you've also got to imagine is, you know, those individuals are are not subject to sort of military control, military command in quite the same way. Those individuals have not gone through a sort of massive period of training, of professionalisation. A lot of them have sort of learnt their trade on the job Mm. in peacetime. But it's on their morale, it's on their ability and willingness to keep putting to sea that depends Britain's capacity to carry on feeding itself. It's on their bloody-minded sort of thought, you know, I'm going to carry on with my job and I'm going to do my best, whether or not, you know, the war for the British really continues... And I think there is a certain bloody-mindedness on the part of an awful lot of merchant seamen. It is a kind of profession which breeds a certain outlook, a sort of rather hard-edged, sort of chisel-edged outlook in terms of, you know, I'm going to carry on doing my job, irrespective of whether people get in the way, whether it's the ship owners, whether it's the German Air Force or the German Navy, and they carry on doing exactly that. But their morale is absolutely pivotal. So uh, the government uh, really uh, begins, I think, by 1941-1942, to begin to recognise that such are the kind of scale of losses which are taking place in the Atlantic, such are the kind of horror stories which are being reported by the press of men having to undertake, following a sinking, lengthy lifeboat voyages, and, you know, men going mad through drinking seawater, inadequate provisions in the boat... Some of those lifeboat voyages lasting, you know, not 30 days, but 60 days or indeed more. The government begins to recognise, you know, we have to do something about that morale. We have to make sure that these people feel that their work is truly valued. And we do begin to see, you know, the government efforts really begin to sort of crystallise by the end of the war. In terms of, you know, producing films like, for example, Western Approaches, which is mentioned in the uh, in in the BBC History Magazine article yeah. Yeah. Uh, that I've written, because it, you know if you see yourself up there on the silver screen, so to speak, then you've got every reason to believe, you know, your your sacrifice, your service is truly being valued. So things things do begin to change during the course of the war.
3: Well, the defence that the, the merchant navy had was the was the convoy system. Yes. Um, so how how did that work? In what way did that defend the merchant navy from from attack from from under under the sea and and above the sea, I suppose.
4: Well, the idea was that if you concentrate all your ships, if you concentrate them into blocks, if you concentrate them into convoys, where you might have 50 ships, which are in five lines, um, 10 ships in those lines, then that gives you a block of shipping, which you can then use your limited number of escort vessels to defend your escort vessels can put patrol in front of that block of shipping as it transits the Atlantic it control around that block and after that block it makes it more defensible and of course what it what it does provide or what it doesn't provide to any U-boat crew that happens to be in the vicinity they're not going to be in a position to be able to knock off a lone vessel on its own totally reliant upon its defensive equipment you know By grouping them into convoys, the Germans know that there's going to have to be a fight if they're going to pick off merchant ships. It's a way of grouping them, of concentrating them, of protecting them, but also maximising the sort of ability of your escort vessels and also your aircraft, potentially, to intervene against any attack as it develops. And it proves to be a very, very successful system indeed. But, of course, the convoy system itself is actually quite difficult to organise. To get 50 ships in one location on one side of the Atlantic for the purpose of going to the other side of the Atlantic requires a considerable amount of organisation.
3: Particularly if one's a fishing trawler and another's an oil tanker.
4: That's it. Because, as it were, some of those vessels, you know, with their best days behind them, their ability to maintain a common speed which is what a convoy calls for, and a common distance from its neighbour in front and behind and to port and starboard can actually become a real sort of problem if the engineering is not up to spec. You have some ships which, because of mechanical difficulty uh, and and breakdown in particular, are forced to straggle. They can't keep up with the, say, five knots that a convoy is doing because obviously... Convoys have got to go almost at the sort of slowest speed, the mm. lowest common denominator in terms of the the package of ships which is there in the convoy. Some, some ships couldn't go as slow as the five knots; they would romp ahead. So they would sometimes have to sort of be given sort of license to actually go ahead of the convoy because, as it were, they couldn't actually go at the slowest speed required.
3: And presumably, they're then putting themselves in danger of being the ones that are picked off by the absolutely.
4: Vehicles. If they're outside the convoy, particularly the stragglers, mm. they are in a very difficult situation indeed. Very difficult.
3: And I, and I suppose the other thing is, is as you said, that the, the merchant ships—they're not, you know, they're not trained Royal Naval personnel manning them. Um, so it must be quite hard for everyone to to, to sort of work under a, a, an overarching control, particularly because, as you say, in the piece, the the, the crews of these ships—they're not—they're not. They're not Um, they they come from all over the world so I guess there's lots of nationalities and languages and things going on must be quite hard for anyone to have maintained an overall control.
4: It's very hard to maintain the discipline I mean you imagine a, a convoy is the ocean going equivalent of formation flying with the red arrows it's at a lot slower speed but as it were you've still got to get it right in terms of maintaining your intervals in terms of maintaining your course the engineering Problems create another sort of factor in there. But so also does the kind of skill or lack of skill and perhaps lack of discipline of some of the merchant navy crews. Um, I mean, there are incidents, for example, of you know people showing lights at night, people smoking on deck, which was sort of strictly prohibited, Mm. because there's sort of civilians who don't perceive themselves to be under that degree of military control, who don't necessarily actually think about it. British and other... Um, merchant navy crew often clinging to rafts, Mm -hmm. to lifeboats is that the German submarine crews almost invariably where they could went out of their way to give some gesture, some assistance to a bunch of people who they saw as brave people in the water and as fellow mariners and as people who the custom of the sea dictated you help struggling fellow mariners in distress so for example there are there are several hundred at least 200 occasions during the war when british merchant seamen are giving material assistance by german submarine crews now that could that could include allowing british Survivors to congregate on the deck of a U-boat while they turn over an upturned boat, an upturned lifeboat, really to agree. right the boat, get the people. It can involve giving water. Have you got enough provisions? It can involve giving food. And on the submarine on the war cruise, you know, food, is, food and water are sort of mm. premium items. Yeah. It can involve things like radioing a distress call on behalf of a ship that's got the. That, has been sunk by the U-boat. It can involve giving medical attention to seamen who perhaps been badly burnt escaping from a tanker. A whole range of different ways in which German submarine crews materially assisted British and indeed other, um, other merchant seamen. Um, a very, very strong ethos which actually Admiral Dernitz at one point in September 1942, following the torpedoing of the line of Laconia, felt obliged to sort of step in and say, for God's sake, don't endanger your boat in giving humanitarian assistance to these fellow mariners in distress or there in the water. It's a real untold story. Yeah. And one of the big things that I, I think needs to be got across is that there is only one documented occasion... In 1944, when a German U-boat machine guns survivors in the water. Even though in popular wartime propaganda, the, the image of German submariners machine gunning men in the water following a sinking mm-hmm. was actually quite prevalent. You know, a lot of merchants even expected you know that might be the result. The realities are the German submarine on fought a very, very clean war. It was humanitarian
3: That was Dr Harry Bennett of Plymouth University. You can read more on the Battle of the Atlantic in our March issue, on sale now, and also available for download to your computer or iPad via historyextra.com forward slash digital.
0: Neil Ferguson is one of the most high-profile historians working today. His latest book, Civilization: The West and the Rest, is just out, and the magazine's deputy editor, Rob Attar, caught up with him to talk about the themes it covers.
7: Just, I guess, to begin with, it might be good if we can clarify what do we mean by, firstly, Western, Mm. secondly, civilisation?
5: Western is, let me put it really succinctly, the the ideas and institutions that arose in Western Europe after around 1400 and then were spread uh, across the Atlantic, all the way to Australia and to selected other places in the course of the next 500 years. Civilization is, I think, simply the largest unit of human social, cultural and political organisation, short of humanity itself. And so it is a large uh, and quite elastic concept. Uh, but to qualify as a civilization you clearly need to be big and quite long-lasting. And that is why I think, if one looks at the literature, there's a relatively stable set of civilizations that most scholars recognize as passing the threshold in terms of size and duration. What makes Western civilization different is that it's really the only civilization in history to achieve such a global reach and to transform the world so comprehensively. I mean, other civilizations have have been impressive, but I think this has to take first prize really for for the extent of its influence and, and the scale of the transformation that it achieved.
7: That's obviously really interesting, because if we were to look back, say, if you say the book about 500, 600 years, the West was nowhere, really. It, wasn't, yeah. it certainly wasn't a dominant civilization.
5: I think if you do what I suggest at the beginning of the book and take a world tour in 1411, you certainly would not come back from it saying, I tell you what, England has a big future ahead of it, or watch those Portuguese, because London and Lisbon were pretty unimpressive places in 1411, tiny by comparison with the big Asian cities, and and pretty nasty and smelly too. If you, on that trip, had gone to Beijing, or what was to be Beijing, gone to Nanjing, the Ming capital, and looked at what the Ming Emperor Yongle was doing, you would have been far more impressed. If you had gone to the heart of the Ottoman Empire, which wasn't then Istanbul, because Constantinople still hadn't been conquered, you would have seen a far bigger and more impressive uh, operation. I mean, even the the Maya, uh, the Aztec uh, and Inca empires would have borne pretty striking comparison, at least architecturally, with what you would have seen in, in Western Europe. So what makes this story really interesting is that the civilization that was going to achieve almost total dominance over the rest within the space of a few hundred years in 1411 was nowhere. It really did not look politically, economically, militarily... It didn't look like it could possibly take on Ming China or the Ottomans and win.
7: So so what then changed in the West in the next few hundred years that allowed the West to completely supersede the others?
5: Well, that's the big question that, that is central to the book. It's the question I spent years grappling with. And finally, I think it boils down to six things. Obviously, there's a legacy of Western civilization Mark I, which is Greeks and Romans, essentially, the ancient learning in Greek and Latin that, beginning in North Italy in the Renaissance, Western Civilization 2.0, Part 2, was able to draw So there is a kind of launch pad for this story, which is the first version. And because that literature, that civilization survived, not least thanks to the Arabs, and could be translated ultimately into European languages or read in the original Latin and Greek, it's not a tabula rasa, but... There are these six things that differentiate Western Civilization 2 from Western Civilization 1. Each of these is unique, and each of these, for a time, the West monopolized. So I start by talking about competition and fragmentation of both political and economic institutions, because I think that was what was conspicuously lacking in China. The second thing that I talk about is science. The scientific revolution really did change the game and was a purely European, with a few North American contributions, but a purely European phenomenon. And again, that was different from what the ancients had done in its methods and in the scale of its achievement. The third thing is this idea of property rights as the basis for the rule of law and ultimately for politics. I mean, I think that's a hugely important idea, and again, it's new. The fourth idea is is the medicine that doubles human life, which is a pretty big advantage once you start understanding how the human body really works. That's distinct from the scientific revolution, they're not completely separate from it. The fifth of the killer apps, as I call them, to try and engage my teenage children's interests is uh, consumerism or the consumer society, and then the, the work ethic, the sort of get out of bed at six, go collapse into bed at midnight. Work ethic, which I think was, again, quite distinctively Western for a time. So I think each of these things, in turn, gave the West an advantage over the rest and ensured that, beginning, I suppose, in the narrow realm of economics, but then spreading, as it were, through the system to to embrace geopolitics, the West became unbeatably superior to the rest.
7: So these things happen, obviously, in Western Europe. What were the things blocking these kind of key developments in the rest of the world. Why didn't, say, Ming China have a scientific revolution or any of these things?
5: Well, that's as important in my book as as why they did happen in the West, because I think one has to ponder why it was that the scientific revolution didn't happen in China, or, for that matter, in the Ottoman Empire, when both these civilizations had made pretty significant advances in science. I mean, after all the Arabs had invented algebra, they had made a major quantum leap relative to the Greeks. They had made big advances in optics. The Chinese had a whole range of technological advantages over the West. And so one is bound to ask why it didn't take off into Western-style modernization, a word that I, I don't really use because it just is too broad a term. But I think the answer to that is, is kind of the inversion of, of what I just said. It, it's the fact that in China there is a pretty monolithic political system there's one emperor, there's one imperial civil service, it's very conformist. And therefore, there isn't the kind of competition that goes on in Western Europe between these multiple small states. And that, that I think, has to be the reason why European governments are incentivized to cross the Atlantic and, and even to sort of see people sail around the hall and try to just go the extra thousand miles. They're incentivized to do that because they dare not compete to sit idly by and leave it all to the Portuguese and Spanish would have been a major mistake for the North Europeans. The Dutch couldn't risk it because the Spaniards were their sworn enemies. English couldn't risk it because the French and Spanish were their sworn enemies. So I think that's the first reason. In Asia, there weren't those tight races. You had the empire and then Japanese pirates, raiders from the north. Or you had the Mughal Empire and competing political entities, but nothing, in neither case, neither in East Asia nor in South Asia, was the kind of perpetual contest, which nobody ever won, which you had in Europe. And I think that's probably the best answer to your question. There's a second part to the answer though, and that is, is that in the Ottoman Empire, and in the Muslim world generally, I think the theocrats got the upper hand. The clergy got the upper hand. Whereas in Galileo's Europe, it was a close-run thing, but ultimately the churches couldn't extinguish the scientific revolution, even in those countries where the church was quite powerful. So there's that. And I think beyond a certain point, Western civilization, once it was structured to be competitive, and once you had the, the victory of science over theocracy... It was kind of self-propelled. And that's why I think the book works in the order that it works. You get those two things. It's from those origins that the great migration to North America happens, which ultimately produces John Locke's ideal society or something like it. And it's ultimately because the West is already on course economically and scientifically that you have these empires in Africa that are both spreading white power, European power, but they're also spreading European medicine, so I think that's the best answer I can give. Interestingly, by the time you get to the 19th century, all that the West has figured out, particularly with respect to the production and manufacturing, is completely open source. It's not secret. The Indians have got cotton machinery from Platt Brothers in Oldham, It's therefore really striking that they still can't get off the ground economically. And so one of the really key points about the argument is to show that the killer applications that made the Western advance possible were there. Uh, But it's only actually very recently, with the exception of Japan, that non-Western countries have actually successfully downloaded them and used
7: them. Do you now think that we're witnessing the kind of death knell of Western supremacy with the rise of China and possibly Indian and countries like that?
5: Well, yes. I mean, although it may not be a death knell,
4: you know, it may be a sort of ringtone.
5: I mean, it's not necessarily the end of the world that the most populous countries on Earth escape from grinding poverty. It, It may actually be to the advantage of everybody, and at least at some level it already has been. I mean, the economic good times of the 1990s and early 2000s would not have been so good without this growth story. The the crisis we're currently in financially would have been worse without the Chinese growth story. So when people talk about the death knell, I sort of feel like saying, wow, it's not quite as bad as that. It's not as much of a cause for despair. Having said that, there obviously is a competition going on, particularly in manufacturing between very cheap Chinese workers and their much better paid counterparts in the West, and it it doesn't seem to me to need a Nobel Prize in economics to see who's going to win. I think that's really the issue, that the West still leads in many respects, but its economic model, based on having superior skills, having superior knowledge, having superior entrepreneurship, that economic advantage is really going. But I I mean, I think all the, the key advantages are going, except for one. If you think in terms of china as the main rival china does not have a political system that is anything like as representative and law-based as the ones we have in the west and that may prove to be a problem for the chinese at some point but i'm certainly in the camp of those who think that china will have a larger economy than the united states within the next 10 or 20 years and i'm certainly one of those who expects china to forge ahead for another two decades without stumbling. In that sense, I'm, I'm with you. The death knell or ringtone is definitely... It's definitely ringing for Western supremacy. That That's over, I think, already.
7: I suppose, to some extent, they've kind of joined Western civilization in these other countries. They well, that's the key issue. I want the
5: reader of the book to say at the end, why well, didn't we Westernise there? Isn't the world world-western, except for the people in the mountains. I mean, I think the reader should have the feeling that much what we regard as being the modern world, the way that we, we live. That mode of living has to a huge extent been adopted by the Chinese. If you took today's Chinese family and said to them, you've got a choice, either go to Florida in 2011 or you can stay right where you are but we're going to take the clock back to 1411. So you can stay in China but it will be yeah. 1411. Nobody's going to take option two. So there's a sense in which lifestyle has been astonishingly westernised almost everywhere you go. And even under the burger, they're wearing, you know, Armani jeans. The question, however, is not has the East conquered the West or has the West conquered the East. I think it's more what will this fusion look like? Because I think it is fusion. If you think back 10 years ago, there were still people talking about, you know, McWorld, you know, a world in which the Golden Arches would be everywhere, and American brands would totally dominate the high street in every country. Well, that hasn't happened. I think we've ended up in something more like a, a fusion restaurant than between the burger joints. And in that fusion restaurant, each country orders from the Western menu what it feels it can reconcile with its traditions. So the Chinese adopt everything except the rule of law, private property rights and democracy. They accept everything except killer app number three in my structure. And that's fascinating because we now get to see if the other ones work without that.
0: That was Rob Attar talking to Professor Neil Ferguson. Ferguson's latest book, Civilization: The West and the Rest, is published by Alan Lane and you can read more from him in the March issue of BBC History magazine.
3: Our final interview this month is with Professor Edward Higgs of the University of Essex. This month sees the latest census being taken across Britain, so I thought this presented an opportune moment to talk to Professor Higgs, an expert on census history, about how the Victorians went about taking the National Survey. The next census in the UK um, is going to be held on the 27th of March, 2011, and uh, the first was held back in 1801. Um, This time round, you'll be able to complete the census online if you wish, so clearly that wasn't possible at the start of the 19th century. That's just one of the many changes in the way that the data has been collected and processed over the years. So I guess what we need to do first is is just take us back to the the 1801 census and and let me ask, why, why do people start asking for census data in the first place what were they looking for there's lots of speculation I mean it it was a rather sort of peculiar
6: sort of uh, arrangement Um, it's all done through the House of Parliament by a a clerk of the House of Parliament called John Rickman and he hasn't left many clues as to what is actually he was doing Uh, so we have to sort of try and work out what's going on from the sort of questions they asked and um, and, and what was going on at the time. And the two parts of it were, first of all, he was asking questions about you know, how many people are in the parish. This was this going out to um, the clerks of the parish. How many people are in manufacturing, how many in agriculture, uh, how many houses you've got. And that was about it. Um, and then he also asked the local clergy uh, about births, marriages and deaths uh, from their parish records over the last hundred years or so. Uh, now, it is is 1801. Uh, Britain's in the middle of a war with France. Uh, it, it may be that what he's trying to do is to find out how many people are working on the land, so raising food because there's a blockade. But it also seems that he's trying to work out whether the population's rising or falling. That They didn't really actually know that at the time Uh, and it seems to link in with a sort of big controversy that rumbles on throughout the 18th century about whether the population what the population is actually doing if you're in government you're saying the population's rising because we're you know governing well if you're in opposition then you're saying oh well, the country's going to pot and the com- and the population's going down so it may be all part of that sort of uh, debate that was going on at the period but we don't actually know because there isn't any, it's there isn't a sort of document that says this is why we're going to take the census
3: okay and, and do we know, did they make much use of those that early census data did did anything come of it did they did, did government um, you know make any changes as a result of what they found
6: not that we know of, no? um, it's, uh, but they keep doing it every 10 years um, and they add in extra questions about uh, ages of people, which may have something to do with insurance, working out life tables and that sort of thing, but what they actually do with the data uh, is difficult to now really because it can't be taxation because there's no income tax, most pe- people don't pay income tax anyway until the Second World War. Um, there's no conscription. Um, and there's no sort of welfare centrally organised. Uh, you don't get boundary changes, really, until after 1832. So exactly what they're doing with it is a bit of a
3: mystery, really. OK. But then, as as we move on through the 19th century, and, and for the 1841 census, things begin to change a bit, don't they? And, and we start to get a, a, a more comprehensive sort of survey.
6: Yeah, yeah. Well... Rickman's surveys are all just headcounts. He sends out a form, clerk uh, of the parish fills it in, numbers, no names. Mm. Um, what happens in 1841 is that the General Register Office takes over from Rickman. Rickman dies. The General Register Office takes over. Now, the General Register Office is set up to do uh, register births, marriages and deaths uh, after 1837. And they move to a much more... Uh, more complicated census where people are actually given household schedules they have to fill in information about the individual members of their household and they collect much more data on um, name relationship to the head of the house marital status occupations birthplaces medical disabilities all this sort of stuff and that seems to be linked in with the much broader statistical interests that the general register office
3: has okay so they start asking for a lot more data. How do they go about um, gathering and processing and analysing this data? Because obviously they didn't have the, the modern advantages of computers that we have today. So, so how do they actually make any use of this?
6: Well, it's all done. It's all done by hand on bits of paper. The census itself is uh, essentially a process of giving householders a household schedule. The sort of thing that people will be getting later on this year. Mm. Householders fill it in. I was assuming they actually can write, of course. Um, and then they hand the household schedule to a numerator, who then copies all this material uh, into uh, an enumerator's book. And then this book goes off to London, where they abstract the data. Now, the process of abstraction is totally manual. It's essentially... Well, we talk to these days about spreadsheets, the word "where spreadsheet" comes from. It's actually a sheet that you spread on a table. Um, so, if you wanted to work out how many people were in a particular place, uh, in a particular occupation, in particular age groups, then you'd have to go through the census return. And on this big sheet, you'd have occupations on the top, ages down the side, make nice little boxes, and you'd put a tick for each someone who's a farmer, aged 15. And if they're an agricultural labour age, 44, it goes somewhere else in the table. Then you produce this great ticking sheet, and then you take the ticks, put them in another set of sheets, where you put the numbers in each of those categories, and then if you want to take that from one district and add up all the districts in a county, you have to take all these sheets and fold them, add up all the numbers. It's a really horrendous business. Um, It was so... Mind-numbingly boring. That, that people in the census, in the, in the general register office, would know to go mad um, because of the sheer tedium of the activity. There's no there's no mechanical aids. It's all done by people um, adding up. Uh, sometimes they probably use spig- um, uh, slide rules and things like that uh, to do some clever calculations. But that's about all they had until 1911. Right. And in 1911, they get what are called um, Hollerith punch card tabulators. Essentially, Hollerith was... Herman Hollerith was an American who invented uh, punch card tabulators for the American census of 1890. Uh, And uh, essentially what happened was that the Americans took all the data, um, punched it onto cards, punch cards. Some of you people who may have... Um, you've been doing computing 30, 40 years ago, remember punch cards? Little cards with holes in them. And um, his, his readers essentially were, well, it's sort of like a box with lots of spring pins on them. If the pins go through a hole at a particular place, connect with a plate behind it, uh, then it sets up an electric circuit that moves round a clock, so you can do lots of fancy calculations automatically. What you're essentially doing is you're creating the, the first database. Mm-hmm. Only it's cards, not something you have on a computer. And this means that you can punch all the data in, and then uh, you can analyse that data in whatever way you want.
3: OK. So up until the 1911 survey, this the, the, the process was so... Eye-wateringly laborious. It was actually very hard for them, even once they'd gathered the information, to do anything with it, because they simply just had to go back to the original source material to ask any question at all.
6: Yeah, yeah. So they had to they had to ask quite simple questions and, and produce quite simple tabulations. Uh, I mean, it, it, you get all these returns, and you, you might have, I think, in in the um, uh, in the 1911 census, you had something like a quarter of a million individual occupational strings, occupational words, Um, and they had to reduce all this down to some sort of meaningful uh, tables. So you had, of course, to take all this data and you had to classify it. Um, So you have to have people working in agriculture, so you've got to include in that farmers, graziers... Agricultural labourers, market gardeners, all this sort of stuff. So you have to abstract all this data and put it into smaller and smaller, um, under smaller and smaller head, or broader and broader headings, I should say, yeah. uh, in order to make any sense of it. Because you can't give the public, you know, a table with, you know, a quarter of a million occupational entries. I mean,
3: absolutely meaningless. Right. Okay, last question. Um, is, obviously, these censuses are, are of great value to, to people studying their family history, genealogists, and you know they give a, a lot of information about that. But what are what are historians doing with these censuses at the moment? How wh- how can they inform the wide historical picture? Are there any particular research projects that are going on to try and understand them and make more use of them? Uh, well, I, um, th- there
6: are lots of projects going on at the moment to actually sort of uh, take the data and, and be able to use it for. Uh, looking at uh, broader trends within the uh, within within the economy, but w- within society in general, uh, one of the things I'm interested in at the moment is, for example, looking at the distribution of disabilities um, uh, within the data. Um, where 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 are all the blind people? Right. Where are the all the idiots and imbeciles? Which actually was a, an entry in in the census. Is are there patterns? um how do people migrate uh, you know we know we know that a lot of people are moving into the cities but where are they coming from what effect does that have on uh, local communities uh do people suddenly get up uh from norfolk and move in a day to london or do people do populations move gradually uh south you know step by step uh, and, and that sort of thing uh where do um where do migrants live? Now, we know there are a lot of people coming, a lot of Jews, for example, coming into the east end of London. Uh, but do they just go to the east end of London? or Where else do they go in the country? Uh, what happens to their children? Uh, do they come in and then are they socially mobile upwards um, this is something you can do if you can you can follow them through the census over time so there's lots and lots of things that we can actually do because once we get the 1911 census then we can start looking at all sorts of things about the relationship between um, social class family size uh, at the end of the 19th century there's a, a huge change in fertility i mean women in one generation are having seven or eight children, the next generation they're having two or three. Um, is everybody doing that? Uh, is it particular classes of people? Is it happening in particular places? What's driving that? I mean, probably the, one of the most important social changes in Britain uh, in the last 200 years, but we know really very little about what's driving these changes. So there's lots of things that historians are, are, are want to do with this data. It's a very important source for us. Excellent.
3: Professor Higgs, thank you very much. That was Professor Edward Higgs of the University of Essex, and you can read a feature from him in the March issue of BBC History magazine. That's it for this issue. And don't forget that we also publish the magazine digitally, so please go to our website, historyextra.com forward slash digital, for information on that. Now, next month, we'll have Britain's technological prowess in World War II, a history of hair and politics... And the story of slavery in South America. Thanks for listening.